Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The USMCA deal was announced yesterday. Uh, Donald Trump had his conference in the Rose Garden, as we predicted he would, and uh, it was uh, the the victory lap, of course, breaking about an awful lot of stuff. And about an hour or so later, Prime Minister Trudeau had this to say about the deal. It's an agreement that, when enacted, will be good for Canadian workers, good for Canadian business, and good for Canadian families. It's an agreement that removes uncertainty for our manufacturers and investors and improves labour rights for all North Americans. Now, it would come as no surprise to most of us that not everyone agrees with the Prime Minister's assessment of the deal. Opposition leader Andrew Scheer and others, by the way, have been very critical about this. And now that the uh, the text of the deal has been released and people have had time to go over this and analyze this, uh, there are some concerns being raised. Uh, one of them, of course, uh, suggesting that Trump wants to leverage o- over Canada-China trade talks. There's obviously some stuff about supply management that we can get into. I want to bring Ian Lee into the conversation from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University and uh, get his assessment. Ian, thank you for uh, taking the time on a busy day today. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Well, first, before we get into some of the nuts and bolts here, your overall assessment on what was released. Um, I, I do support this deal because I have consistently, from the very beginning, said that the worst possible deal of all was not having a deal not being in a trade agreement. That's where I disagreed with Mr. Trudeau. He said, I'd rather have no deal than a bad deal. And I said, he's got it upside down and backward. No deal is the bad deal, the worst possible deal of all. And so even a, quote, uh, suboptimal uh, deal uh, with concessions in it is better than not having a trade agreement at all. Why? Because they're the largest economy in the world, 20 trillion GDP, one country out of 200 at the UN, and they account for 25% of the world. So we've got to be there. There's just no two ways about it. Our economies are so tightly integrated, it would be madness for us not to be in a trade agreement. That does not mean that it can't be criticized, that Trudeau can't be criticized. My fundamental criticism is, and one of the trade negotiators or former trade negotiators said the very same thing the other day, this took a year and four months. They could have had this negotiated in the first seven days. This was on the on offer sat at the first seven days of the negotiations a year and a half ago. So if we hadn't, I, I, I know we're speculating. I know I am speculating, saying, well, what if, what if? But, you know, I still think that we could have had a better deal, although I'm very pleased we have a deal. Uh, I'm, I think we could have had a better deal if we had not decided to go after and give speeches, six blocks in the White House insulting Trump and comparing him to uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria or Putin in Russia, I think we probably could have got, uh, we would have had to give less concessions if we'd had a better relationship, and we could have probably got a a deal that was uh, better than the one we have. But again, I don't want to, you know, hide the fact I do agree that this deal is better than no deal at all, and so I'm pleased we did sign it. Well, let's talk about the auto sector, because that was one of the key elements. And I think you and I have, have talked in, 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 I think, pretty blunt terms about uh, the threat of auto tariffs, and, and yeah. I thought it was a real threat. I mean, uh, I, I, I take Trump at his word that, I mean, he did it with steel and aluminum, but yeah. uh, and, and I think if there was no deal by midnight on Sunday, we ran a pretty big risk of those tariffs. I think I, I completely agree with you. Um, I mean, there were two sort of, uh, they were correlated, uh, two uh, existential threats. One was no deal at all, and then the second was the, the follow-up whammy that he had promised to do, and I believed he was going to do it, which was to impose tariffs on, on our auto industry, which every analysis I read by serious economists, econometricians, and so forth, showed that it would have been absolutely devastating to Canada. It probably would have pushed us into a recession. So, you know, we, that had to be avoided at all costs. And so we opened up the dairy a bit. So we opened up pharmaceutical, extended patent life protection. These, to me, are small costs to pay for such huge benefits of uh, saving the, the auto industry from being blown up and, of course, saving the Canadian economy from, not being, um, from being uh, outside of the deal. So uh, again, I, uh, I, you know, I can challenge him on certain things that they did um, and didn't do, but uh, I'm pleased that we have a deal. So we have certainty for the next 17, 16 years uh, because of the sunset law uh, provision. Uh, we have certainty that will help foreign investors decide to locate in Canada, locate in the auto industry in southern Ontario, and uh, because they know they have a guaranteed market to export to in the USA. 
I, there's one comment of, of all the economists I've read, and I don't know how many actually over the last 24 hours in, uh, regarding the auto industry, and I'm glad you brought that up because uh, there is a quota, there is a ceiling uh, when it comes yeah. to the cars that can go in there. Uh, and and the, this economist suggested that, well, the, you know, that's basically tying our hands and who's ever going to invest in the auto industry in this country as long as there's a ceiling. Uh, and, and I guess on a philosophical level, there may be some merit to that, but it's a pretty high ceiling. And, and it's also, from what I understand, negotiable at, at about the six-year mark. That's right. I, I agree with you completely. First off, the ceiling is 25% above what we're producing now. Um, and, and I don't think there's any serious person who studies the auto industry who is saying that we're on the urge, uh, on the cusp of a takeoff, whereby we're suddenly going to soar by 25% um, from 1.7 million cars and trucks produced annually to something well north of 2.5 million, approaching 3. Uh, I don't see that happening. I don't see any evidence of that happening whatsoever, given the fact that we have uh, uh, significantly lower productivity in Canada than the U.S., and we have higher wages in Canada relative to the U.S. Let's leave Mexico out completely. So I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And you're right, it's renegotiable. I think, if anything, it's it's almost a de facto sunset clause. In other words, it's going to force, it's going to provide one more motivation to come back and renegotiate the, the agreement if, for some reason, either side is aggrieved and sees something in it down the road in five or six years that they don't like and they want to reopen it early. And that just gives them a, a lever to do so. I mean, there was a time, uh, you know, when the big three we're investing in, in building plants here, but uh, that's in the rearview mirror now, isn't it? It is. In fact, I'm working uh, slowly <laughs> on a paper on the North American auto industry, really focusing on the uh, U.S. And when I say the U.S., um, what I discovered and when I started doing this research some time ago is that there's really two auto industries now. There's the North the Midwest auto industry around that proverbial word that we all know about called Detroit. And it's not literally Detroit. It's the upper Midwest of the U.S., and then there's the uh, the South, um, and the South uh, is forecast this year to surpass the Midwest of the United States in the number of cars and trucks produced. Uh, so there's 10 states in the uh, SAC, Southern Automotive Corridor, um, you know, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, and so forth. These are the so-called right-to-work states, but it's not just because of right-to-work. I'm not trying to go down that road. Uh, I, I've been there. I've traveled through there. Their wages are lower. Their cost of land is lower, municipal taxes are lower, state taxes are lower, gasoline taxes are lower, property taxes are lower, cost of living is lower, and, and, their, product, and their, uh, their productivity is higher. And, and so what's happened is over the last 30, 40 year, 35 years is more and more companies have been migrating to the deep south. And, um, and this is where the Americans regained their competitive advantage in automotive. And so we say we're competing with Mexico. This is where I strongly disagree with Mr. Diaz. We're really competing with the Deep South, where they're paying about half the wages that we are paying in the auto industry in the southern United States. Not only that, but those states also incentivize those companies, don't oh, they? big time, big yeah, time. We'll pay for your infrastructure. We'll put oh. the sewers in. We'll build the roads. Uh, we'll give, give you, you tax free tax for 10 years. And give you a tax year holiday for 10 years, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, the, 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 they did a good thing on this, uh, but I wouldn't get too, I wouldn't, uh, nobody should get too alarmed. The, the big news is they saved the day. They've got 16 years of stability for the auto industry to go out and attract uh, more foreign investment into Canada with the assurance that don't worry, uh, Mr. Investor or Ms. Investor, you will have a right of access to export your product to the U.S. All right, let's let's get into supply management. I know it, it's been a sore point for you and for many others yeah. for a long, long yeah. time here. Uh, as as we expected, the dairy industry is pushing back pretty severely on this and saying yeah. this is going to kill the industry. Uh, the government's responded by saying, "Look, at we're going to we'll, we'll subsidize you guys. You're going to get money. Don't worry about this." That's right. That's right. But but they 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 look at this as an attack on supply management. Uh, and and others are looking at this and saying this is uh, really a sign of what's going to inevitably happen here is that we're going to have to get rid of this system at some point. That's my interpretation, and I do want to disclose I don't consult to anybody anywhere. I'm not being hired by anybody to say this. I did do two studies on this. I looked at all the facts, all the statistics. I looked at what Australia and New Zealand did in getting rid of supply management, the fact that we're the only country in the world that even has supply management, and the dairy and chicken farmers are the only farmers that have supply management. Our own beef farmers in Canada do not have supply management. Our own hog farmers 
Our grain farmers out in Western Canada that produce enormous amounts of grain do not have supply management. Our, our, uh, our uh, vegetable and fruit do not have it. So it's a tiny, tiny, tiny subset of agriculture in Canada, and we're the only country in the world. So, I, I, so where I'm going is that does not mean that I'm saying let's declare war on farmers, not at all. I think that the business model called supply management is will date it one day its demise from this point. Because, you know, I do agree with the dairy farmers. This is death by a thousand cuts because they were given, the American producers were given a 5% of the total Canadian dairy market access under this agreement. So were the European farmers under the CETA. And, of course, the TPP farmers of the other nine countries and the TPP have been given this too. So it, it probably is death by a thousand cuts. Uh, it just means that we're going to change our model from the current model of supply management, where we keep out foreign competition using high tariffs, we'll shift to the European and American model, which is we subsidize the farmers directly with a check. And some say it's not better, but that's the model that's used in most countries today. This isn't theory. I'm telling you actual hard reality. The Europeans are famous. My goodness, the French, subsidizing their farmers directly with checks. Same with the Americans. So I think we're going to end up going down that road. So these farmers are not going to, quote, vanish or disappear or be destroyed. The, the way they're compensated is going to change. Well, and there is a sense of inevitability. Uh, I mean, yes. those that have longer memories could remember that when Stephen Harper was negotiating trade deals with the European and even the uh, Trans-Pacific, uh, that was on the table. As a matter of fact, he was, yes. pr- he was proposing to phase it out, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. And you're right, it was on the table. It just irritates so many different people uh, for different reasons. I mean, economists and, and policy wonks like me are irritated because it's just the antithesis of everything, not only that I've taught for 30 years, but of what we've known from 300 years of theory and practice. The richest countries in the world trade the most. They have open, liberal market economies. And the poorest countries in the world have closed economies where they regulate the price, regulate production. That was the Soviet Union model. That's North Korea. So why would we be going down a road supporting a model that is such a clear failure? <laughs> you know, when we can do, there's other models out there. So I, I do think it's, it's inevitable. It's going to be uh, phased out. And I'm sure that the dairy farmers, if they're strategic, and I'm talking the lobby association now, not literally the farmers, should be in there negotiating with the Minister of Agriculture culture, the, the, the government in Ottawa saying, okay, what can we do, what can you do to provide a transition, a bridge to the future so that our people aren't hurt? And I think that's eventually what they'll start uh, doing. i got a minute or two left here. Now, we're going to talk about steel a little bit later on in the show, but on a, on a philosophical level, I, again yesterday in the Rose Garden, Trump reiterated his yep. love of tariffs. Uh, there, by my count, uh, really, Ian, about a handful of people in the United States that think tariffs are good. Unfortunately, they all seem to work in the Trump administration. I agree with you. Wilbur Ross and Navarro and others like that. Yes. Uh, but there's, it, and, and it's really pushing against the flow here, isn't it? The, the whole idea that tariffs are good. Tariffs have been studied since Adam Smith 300 years ago. There is no serious economist in the world that I know of or I have read who believes that tariffs are good. All they do is raise the cost of the good, making it less competitive. Now, when I put it that boldly, how can anybody say, oh, this is a cool thing? The reason Trump likes them has nothing to do with the bad economics of tariffs. It's got to do with the first, he can do it easily without going to the Congress. So he can do it by executive authority, and he doesn't like being told what to do. That's one reason why he likes it. Secondly, he knows that nobody else likes tariffs, including Canada and Germany and China. And so he's got leverage over these countries when he negotiates with them. And so he, being the very self-important person in his own mind, likes the fact that A, he's got the capacity to lever to uh, impose the tariffs, and B, he's got this ability to make us jump, to make us pay attention to him. So this is all about Donald Trump and Donald Trump's ego. It's not about the economics of tariffs. It's about the fact that he has a stick with which he can hit us, and the Germans, and the Mexicans, and the Chinese, and so forth. So he's not using this as an economic tool, he's using this as a weapon. Exactly, exactly, precisely. And he's not going to let this go anytime soon. No, because it, it yields, uh, sadly, unfortunately, it yields results. Uh, people do pay attention, they do say, okay, let, let's sit down and talk. So, you know, it's like the guy who carries a great big gun and you don't have a gun on you. Well, you're going to pay a, be very respectful to that person. I mean, that's just the nature of the imbalance 
uh, in that particular scenario. And in this scenario, it is the largest economy in the world. If he was a some minor economy and, and, you know, in the developing world, nobody would pay any attention to him. But it is the largest economy in the world. Every country that I've ever studied wants to do business in the United States, wants to access that incredibly wealthy market. And for that reason, they're going to pay attention to him when he starts to whack them over the head with tariffs. And, and he gets their attention very, very quickly. And so, and he likes to be the big, powerful guy out there, you know, bossing people around, telling people what to do. And so his uh, infatuation with tariffs is not because of the economics, as I said. It's because of the instantaneous gratification and the clout or leverage politically it grants him over other countries. That's why it's popular with him, I think. Ian Lee at the Sprout School of Business. Uh, as always, Ian, thanks so much for this. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. We'll talk again soon. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, one of the real concerns, of course, uh, with all the trade deals that are going on and uh, the USMCA deal that was announced yesterday is the continuation of the steel and aluminum tariffs. We had hoped, of course, that if a deal was reached, that uh, that there would be a lifting of the tariffs. Uh, It's not happening. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, yesterday with his announcement, President Trump said, no, they're going to stay in place. Uh, he likes tariffs. He likes this whole idea. Well, whatever. Uh, we're told now that there may be able to be a separate uh, negotiation to try to get that done. The Prime Minister uh, later in the day also responded. Moving forward on eliminating uh, the uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum uh, remains a priority for us, for Mexico, and something that the Americans have indicated that they are uh, more than willing to work on. Uh, that's going to be a separate negotiation, according to the experts. And, uh, well, I can only think that if it is dealt with the same kind of acrimonious attitude as the, the NAFTA negotiations where it could be some time. This is bad news for the steel industry, of course, here on the Canadian side of the border. ArcelorMittal, DeFasco, uh, Stelco, and, and of course other steel entities are looking at this with great interest. Uh, how is this deal going to announce, that was announced? How is this going to impact this? And how are the negotiations about releasing these tariffs uh, going to impact what's going to be happening in the next little while? Joining us to talk about this is Greg Mordew, McMaster's ArcelorMittal DeFasco Chair in Advanced Manufacturing Policy. Uh, Greg, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate you hopping in today. Good morning. Good to have you with us today. Uh, first of all, let, let, let's talk about the impact that the tariffs have had on, on the steel industry and ArcelorMittal DeFasco and, and Stelco in particular. There was a concern uh, right off the bat, Greg, obviously, about the impact, the negative impact this was going to have. But we kind of counterbalanced that with a story that I know you read last week that said that actually, you know what, sales are up in spite of that, uh, which uh, kind of gave us some hope, but I, I'm guessing that's not going to last forever. Well, I, you know, I, it, it, it's not possible to conject or project what's going to happen with respect to uh, steel or any other uh, tariff um machinations that Mr. Trump and his uh, crew might uh, um, create over the next little while. I think one of the reasons that I've seen that that, that makes uh, some degree of sense is that there was perhaps a reluctance to tie um, steel and steel and aluminum tariffs under Section um, 232, which is this uh, national defense or security um, provision that the president holds to uh, the reluctance was to tie that to a trade deal because uh, the section 32 232 rather is not supposed to be tied to uh, to uh, tariff or to uh, trade uh, machinations it is a security provision so to tie it to uh, the USMCA I have to say that slowly to make sure I get it right <laughs> would uh, would be uh, contrary to the, uh, the the basic premise by which the uh, 232 is was devised. So. Does does it also indicate that actually even the the, the rationale for these th- tariffs were, was rather flimsy and and it just it just seems this this tie in and I'm uh, I, I'm even relating to some of the stuff I've read from some of the U.S. economists about this too, Greg. That simply said, look, that's that's really stretching it. Well, I think I think anyone that looks at it in a, in a rational way understands that it's uh, that it's not uh, that it's exactly that stretching it i don't think i think that the history would show and the relationships would show that uh, canada is not a threat to the uh, national security of the u.s the um, i mean putting uh, um, using 232 as a mechanism in the industry that i look most closely at in the auto industry is uh, is 
uh, has been a threat, was a threat, apparently has been pulled off, but was uh, was uh, ludicrous at its core. I mean, we are not lining up uh, um, Ford Edges made in Oakville to uh, storm the border. So uh, be that as it may. Well, they're, they're heading to the border. Back. They're heading to the border because seventy percent of the cars we produce here get sold over there, but yeah, uh, but right. but not in an antagonistic way. That's right. Uh, so that there's a lot of, of, of fudging of, of numbers and facts that are going on here, which is not unusual, I guess. I've come to expect that for Trump, but obviously it's having an impact. But you, you brought up the auto industry, and obviously the, the, those are are married together: the steel industry and the auto industry, especially in the case of ArcelorMittal to Fasco. An awful lot of their product is geared toward the auto industry. So. Uh, you got good news that there's not going to be tariffs. I, I guess that's that's okay. Uh, there is a ceiling on on what we're allowed to send back into the states, but it's a pretty high ceiling, and we'll see what happens with that. But then you've got the the, the tariffs that are still in place here right now. So it, was it a good news bad news situation, Greg? Well, I mean, our prime minister characterized it as a win win win. I'm not sure it was a win win win, but it was uh, certainly. We didn't lose. And by uh, the standard of did we basically keep what uh, we had anticipated that we wanted to keep? Yeah, we did. I mean, the uh, the uh, ceilings under uh, uh, that, that were put in place that you mentioned for the auto industry are exports of 2.6 million vehicles a year and exports of, uh, of just uh, north of $30 billion a year in the event of a 232 being applied to the global auto industry. Frankly, we haven't made two. Um, we haven't even made in Canada um, 2.6 million vehicles since 2004, 2005, rather. I'm not sure that we have ever exported 2.6 million, even when we were making record numbers in 1999 and 2000. So, frankly, I I, I hope I, I would hope that two point getting close to that 2.6 million export ceiling would be a problem for us. That would. Uh, that would uh, denote the addition of a couple of additional full-scale assembly plants. We've only had one new assembly plant in the last 30 years. We've lost six assembly plants in Ontario since 2000. So I don't think, I wish, but I don't think we're ever going to have to worry about the uh, the ceiling insofar as 2.6 million vehicles, as an example, is concerned. Well, that's one of the stories that I read yesterday from an economist who is being critical of this. And, and you're right, there are some things here that need to be discussed. Uh, it's it's you know, With any trade deal, there's going to be winners and losers in this situation. But they were complaining about this, t- this ceiling that was imposed here. Uh, and, and the days of huge investment into the Canadian side of the auto industry here, I, I don't want to say they're gone, but we're, we're past those halcyon days, aren't we, back in the 60s when they were building plants all over the place here? As you say, the, the new mother load for them is the southern United States, and that's where if there's going to be any plants built, it's probably going to be down there. We're, we're I would think, fortunate to hang on to what we've got here, aren't we? Yeah, this is this the industry of, of, of building vehicles, and uh, it it pains me to mention this, but the, 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 the job of building vehicles is something that has transitioned over the past 20 years or so from a, from a high-cost, economically advanced um, game um, for countries to do that to, uh, to lower-cost places. And we, we've seen that transition. You mentioned to the southern U.S., and certainly we've seen a bigger transition into uh, to Mexico, which caused a lot of this anxiety in the U.S. in the first place. But um, my research, if anyone cares, is shows that the uh, that auto manufacturing in 2000, the, the most advanced, higher cost places represented about 75 percent of global production. Today, it represents um, just a little bit less than 40 percent. So we are on a slope that is very difficult to uh, to change. The uh, the uh, extension of uh, NAFTA or the USMCA um, mitigates that a little bit, but the uh, the 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 evidence is there that this is transitioning into low cost locations. 
What is, uh, from uh, the standpoint of what's going on, let's talk about ArcelorMittal for just a second if we could, uh, because we know that the, you know mm-hmm. one of the strengths, well, it's the strength is people, if I can go with the cliche, mm-hmm. but uh, it also is diversity. I mean, you know, the, 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 the product lines there, the stuff that is produced at ArcelorMittal DeFasco uh, is diverse, and, and, and that obviously gives you some defense against these sorts of things that are happening. Uh, orders are still up. I mean, they're still going to be making cars, and they're going to be buying steel from you. Uh, is there a concern from ArcelorMittal, that is? Is there a concern? That, that that's going to dry up in time? Because my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Greg, is that a lot of what is going on at ArcelorMittal DeFasco vis-a-vis the auto industry right now, uh, there's it's not replicated to the same extent as it is with some of the U.S. Uh, steelmakers, and, and they'd actually have to reinvent themselves, which takes time. Well, I think I, it, well, I think that that's the uh, the uh, the secret of the strength of ArcelorMittal DeFasco is that they do continue continually and do have a history of reinventing themselves and uh, being at the forefront of innovation. In a company like uh, DeFasco, part of a big global organization, and I've seen it in my own history as well, uh, you know, stuck in Canada doing a very good job. They have a culture. And they have a, a, a history, even within the relatively short period of time within their history of, of, of being a part of the ArcelorMittal um, group, of having to uh, punch above their weight in order to be heard and to be recognized and to be given mandates, global mandates for innovation and global mandates for product. They have to not simply be as good as, um, as, as the U.S., for example. They have to be better. And that's, I believe, is the 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 core of the the value system within within um, within ArcelorMittal DeFasco, as it is in a lot of Canadian subsidiaries of international companies. They have to be not just as good as the uh, as the big market uh, um, colleagues in the U.S., for example. They have to be better. And 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 what I see from uh, ArcelorMittal DeFasco is that they hold that. Um, pretty uh, intently and and are constantly innovating. There's an interesting dynamic that's going on, and let's face it, uh, there's a lot of politics in, in economics these days. that They're intertwined, obviously, and maybe even more so because of, uh, of Trump and what's going on down there. But when he was threatening auto tariffs, uh, he got pushback from the auto industry on both sides of the border, as, as we know. Because uh, they said this is going to hurt everybody. I mean, you, they, they didn't understand the uh, the integration of the supply chain, a number of other things, that everybody was going to get banged up by that. Uh, on the other side, though, when we start talking about steel tariffs, my understanding is that the steel industry down in the States thinks this is a pretty good idea. Uh, and and they're, they're kind of letting the Canadian entities sink or swim on this. So uh, they're getting mixed messages at the White House, but I don't know that there's going to be a pushback, at least not much of a pushback anyway, from the U.S. steel industry on this. I think they're pretty comfortable with this. Well, I mean, these things can be very awkward for, uh, for um, international corporations and the subsidiaries of international corporations. And I'll, I'll come back to the auto industry. I'm, I'm sure. not necessarily directly answering your question. But um, but just about every, uh, every stakeholder, um, to a degree, it was conflicted over the uh, over the processes that were going on. I mean, I, I mean, we had uh, we had the five OEMs or originally auto assemblers in Canada, all advocating for a continuation of of a three country NAFTA, um, including Mexico. At one point in time, there was perhaps could have been conceivably an opportunity for a bilateral with the U.S., but the uh, three country, the three comp- the five companies in Canada were all adamant, alongside with the uh, government of Canada, that there would be a three-country uh, um, NAFTA. And and one of the reasons that the uh, five companies were uh, that make cars in this country that were adamant about a three-country NAFTA was not necessarily because of this long-standing affinity that they uh, that, that they had with Mexico, but rather their uh, their uh, corporate headquarters would have been well in favor of a three-country NAFTA because that's what that their their companies would have advocated for. So this so. You know, it, it, this is, this becomes a, a, a very interesting uh, dynamic that uh, 
that 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 policymakers need to try to ferret their way through, because you know people say one thing, and uh, as members of a company, they may believe something else as uh, as Canadians. So it's a challenge for policymakers to uh, poke and prod and figure out what is in fact exactly best for uh, for uh, for their stakeholders. Uh, whether they're automakers or uh, workers or anybody else. Which is exacerbated by the fact that there's obviously midterm elections going on in the States in just a couple of weeks, and we have a federal election coming up in less than a year now. Uh, and that tends to, to heighten, I guess, politicians' awareness as to the sorts of voices that they're going to hear, uh, which I, is probably why not a whole lot gets done when you get in towards elections, at least from a political standpoint anyway. How, how sustainable is the current situation? I mean, as the sun came up this morning, Greg, uh, we got, I guess, relatively good news about the auto industry, no tariffs, and, and looks like things are going to go swimmingly for the next little while. But these tariffs on steel and aluminum are still there, and that, that has going to have an impact at some point here. Is, uh, is there a, a date down the road or a time down the road when you say, whoops, if we get there, we're in trouble? Well, I think at, at, at some point in time, the um, companies are never going to make rash decisions. And I'm sure that the uh, ArcelorMittal people that are thinking about uh, investing in uh, ArcelorMittal de Fasco or people that are thinking about investing anywhere within the, uh, the steel industry supply chain are looking at the uh, situation with respect to uh, tariffs and steel and thinking, well, we've got to make some investments, but maybe we should hold off on Canada for a while. Let's see where this 232 goes. That, that's that's exactly what was happening and has been happening in the auto industry for the past two, three, seven years, frankly. And there's always been an excuse to sit on your corporate wallet and not invest. And for the last couple of years, the reason not to invest in Canada was the uh, the, the machinations surrounding uh, NAFTA. Is it going to is it going to persist? In what in what form will it or shape will it be in the future? In the in would we uh, would we uh, um, exacerbate an already tenuous situation with respect to uh, Mr. Trump and, and 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 his cabinet if we invest in Canada instead of the U.S. What happens if we if we continue to invest in Mexico? Will 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 we become as a co- an individual company a target of uh, of the wrath of that administration. That issue has been now resolved for the auto industry. So frankly, it's time for the auto industry to get off their wallet and start investing in Canada, unless there's another excuse that comes forward to uh, to not do so. So the but these things are not helpful, and uh, obviously, I don't know how long the uh, delays in investment can can go on. It's like. Uh, somebody can stay up one of my students can stay up all night and and, and study and maybe they can stay up half the next night and study but for something else or do something else but eventually they're going to crash and uh, eventually the lack of investment in 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 uh, the manufacturing sector in canada will uh, will have a price and and it becomes a bigger problem than it currently is Got a minute and a half or so left here. I, what about the China factor here when it comes to steel? Uh, obviously, Trump has has a problem with China. He's just increased tariffs on a number of goods there. Uh, the insinuation, of course, was that uh, the Chinese steel is making its way into the United States uh, through Canada, uh, which obviously gives uh, him an opportunity to look with a wary eye upon us too. How, how, what what can we do in, on this side of the border to assuage those fears? Well, I think that the uh, government of Canada has done a very pretty good job over the past couple of years as they've gone through this process and reaching out to their uh, their uh, their colleagues in, in, in the U.S. Congress and in the individual states and uh, and and educating them. I mean, it's an uphill it's an uphill battle because people tend not to pay, uh, believe it or not, <laughs> to pay as much attention to Canada as they do to their own backyard. But the uh, government of Canada and, and, frankly, a lot of the prov- provincial people have done a pretty good job reaching out, trying to educate, targeting who they need to educate, and uh, and 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 keeping the dialogue going. And, and and frankly, that's the most important job that 
that uh, policymakers can do on behalf of industry in Canada right now. Greg, thanks as always uh, for the input into this. These are uh, interesting times, shall we say, and and hopefully we're going to get a, a decent resolution as we uh, move forward on this, so the steel industry and those tariffs. Really do appreciate your input, though. Thanks for this today. Thank you. Take care. Greg Mordew, McMaster, ArcelorMittal, DeFrasco Chair in Advanced Manufacturing Policy. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The decision to scrap the sex ed curriculum, uh, obviously, uh, uh, you know, trying to assuage, I guess, the concerns of the people on the far right that supported Doug Ford as uh, he moved towards his election. Uh, and there's a lot of concern about what they were going to do. Of course, they have replaced it with a, a, an older version. Uh, now, when that was announced and the, and the students went back to school, of course, there was a big pushback on that, with about 40,000 students actually walking out of class a couple of uh, weeks ago as a protest about what was going on. And uh, obviously, a number of parents' groups on both sides of the issue have also uh, been very vocal about this, uh, some chastising the government for doing this without any research, others saying it was long overdue, we just don't feel comfortable with it, et cetera, et cetera. You've heard those arguments going on. So uh, what we heard from the government was simply, okay, we're going to do, uh, I think the, the phrase that M- Mr. Ford used was the most extensive public consultation this province has ever seen uh, on the sex ed problem and curriculum. And uh, there's going to be all kinds of opportunity for you, me, everybody to weigh in on this. So we thought, okay, I can hardly wait for the announcement because a lot of folks are just you know, waiting and chomping at the bit here to get involved in this. That's why it was a surprise to me when I found out the consultation's already started. Last Friday they announced that, uh, yeah, you can do this now. Uh, the minister got kind of flat-footed, and I think the opposition members were saying, hey, whoa, 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 this is such a big deal to you. How come this just kind of slid under the radar? But uh, she says that she has contacted the boards of education uh, to begin a process about consultation, and uh, they want to work with the boards or through the boards, I guess. Uh, it wasn't really very clear as to how this was actually going to roll out. But it's important, obviously, for a lot of reasons, and it's controversial for those same reasons. So where is uh, the board on this, and what's the, the Hamilton Board of Education's role in this whole process? Well, let's ask Todd White. He is the chairman of the board and, of course, the trustee for Ward 5 for the Hamilton and District School Board, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Morning, Todd. How are you today? Good morning, Bill. Did you get the phone call from the ministry last week? No, not at all. <laughs> no, I mean, hearing your introduction, I think, uh, I mean, you've asked a lot of really good questions in terms of what is the role of the board. Um, and right now, the, the answer is we haven't received any, any word in terms of what our participation will be in terms of uh, uh, providing feedback and in terms of communicating with parents and uh, uh, helping with the consultation process. We haven't received any information either. Yeah, the quote I've got here, and this is from uh, the story from the Toronto Star from Kristen Rushow uh, from the Queen's Park Bureau, says the ministry contacted school boards on Friday to say the outline written submission phrase had opened. Uh, I guess they didn't have your number. Yeah, and that's the unfortunate piece. I've noticed as of late a lot of the updates uh, from the Ministry of Education uh, have been reported in the media before um, we've had a chance to read the memos. So, you know, you get the opportunity just as quickly as we do to try to digest the information. And unfortunately, uh, to date, it's been pretty thin uh, in terms of details. So it's definitely been a struggle trying to better understand uh, how we can support parents uh, in terms of the changes that are expected and and what we can do to help. Well, I I got the sense from what the minister had said, uh, Minister Thompson had said about this, that they were looking at at you guys, meaning school boards, not just yours, but right across the province, as partners in this process. But, I mean, if, if, if you're not in the loop, you can't be a partner. Well, and that, that's precisely right. And we've written the, the ministry on, on this issue uh, right in the summer when it first arose. There's been a number of other agencies, school boards and otherwise, that have provided feedback. Um, we haven't really uh, received many answers. We've asked more questions and the answers have been provided. Obviously, uh, knowing that there would be a consultation, uh, we want to assist with that because the feedback that we've received in Hamilton has been overwhelming in terms of not changing the curriculum. Um, so if we, we want to make sure there's an opportunity to provide feedback to the ministry. Uh, right now, as you mentioned, on Friday, they opened uh, the consultation to open submissions uh, and then mentioned at a later date there will be an online survey that can be filled out as well. Um, but we don't have those details yet either. So we want to make sure parents are directed to that, uh, that feedback can be compiled. Um, but right off the bat, um, it hasn't been a great start. 
here, here's a concern, though, because I've, I've seen the, the brief overview that the minister talked about here. Like you say, telephone town halls, uh, which, by the way, can be somewhat problematic and, and hard to manage, because I've taken part in them in the past. I understand that. Online surveys. That's pretty benign, Todd. I mean, it does not really give people an opportunity to express their feelings on the issue. Well, and then that's it as well. When you when you provide an open online survey, uh, we run into this at our board uh, in terms of the statistical uh, relevancy of the data that you get. In many cases, it's anonymous. Um, you could fill out the form, you know, a hundred times if you wanted to become more political in nature. Of course, you can beg the question and lead people with the questions that you're asking as well. Um, so you wonder how, uh, you know, genuine it's going to be and, and how relevant the so the answers are going to be. But but I think you're correct that the telephone town hall, um, we've all experienced those, I think, in some way or another. Uh, they're less of a uh, back and forth dialogue. It's basically you're pushing a message out, and it tends to be more of a PR exercise than anything. Um, the open submissions, I don't think, aside from larger organizations, you're going to have a lot of folks providing open submissions. So really, I think you're, you're right. It comes down to the, 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 the most popular way to provide feedback will be this online survey. And at the end of the day, isn't that what already happened when the Liberal government was uh, in power? They did uh, a similar approach um, where they tried to uh, consult parents and they tried to do so in a proper representative, uh, in a proper uh, represented pattern across uh, schools and school boards. So I'm not seeing uh, a, a huge difference between what's already occurred and what is uh, possibly occurring now. Well, yeah, there, there could be a huge difference, though, and that comes down to exactly the point you touched on a second ago. How do you, how do you compose the questions? What questions do you ask? And that can very much determine the sorts of outcomes that you can get from those surveys. That's right, and and we. Have I'm not suggesting they're yet. doing that because yeah. we don't know yet. But I'm saying it's very easy to manipulate that process. That that's right, and and what they had right off the bat, you look at the title of the consultation. The, the title uh, is uh, um, uh, creating a, a, a new uh, age-appropriate uh, uh, path for or plan for health and physical education. So right off the bat, they indicate that it's something's wrong with the age levels that are currently... Well, in other words, uh, they've already made up their mind. Well, yeah, yeah. So when you read it, you, you kind of think, okay, we can see which direction it's going, but are we actually going to ask those questions? And if we are looking for a more age-appropriate uh, uh, path, what's the question that you ask parents, for instance? Are we going to start naming portions of the sex ed curriculum and asking parents what grade they should think it should be offered? Um, to me, that's a bit of a shot in the dark. Without having, you know, fulsome discussions and information, uh, even myself, off the, uh, you know, on an online survey, I don't think would be qualified necessarily to make those decisions. You're an elected official. I've been in that chair for a number of years, a long time ago, uh, and I know that any elected official usually uh, gets a little bit antsy when it gets to a, a, an open forum in an auditorium, someplace with a mic and somebody walking up there and said, "Mr. White, I want to tell you what I think about this." It may be an uncomfortable situation, but it is democracy, and, and I'd like to think that the par- province is actually going to allow that 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 opportunity for people to actually express their feelings on both sides of the issue. But it, it just seems as if they're they're. Well, I, I'm not. I'm not really impressed with the the, the rollout here. It doesn't really show me, Todd, that everybody's going to have that opportunity to weigh in on this. Well, and I think that's what it comes down to. If someone is going to do a, a proper consultation or survey, um, you want to make sure that it's done very well. It's, it's statistically relevant. You want to make sure that the data that that uh, comes out of those surveys are, are publicly uh, distributed. If there's going to be the buy-in and faith that the that the consultation was effective. You want to actually see the data. Uh, you don't want some high-level political summary of, of what they felt that they heard. So, you know, I think it's, you know, we're still in a bit of a wait-and-see approach, but right now um, there seems to be more politics that, that kind of is a, a cloud over this whole discussion versus actual um, research, uh, proper feedback, proper analysis. So we hope that it will lean in that direction in the end, but right now uh, it does seem to be more politically focused uh, than, than anything. i got another concern here, and I, I want to get your read on this, because... Uh, when when this issue came about, and it came about actually during his leadership, and then it, it, it you know trickled on down into the campaign itself with his promise to scrap the sex ed curriculum, and of course he got elected, and, and he has done that, and he said there was going to be this consultation, and such as it is, and we will you know we've been trying to ascertain exactly how they're going to approach this, but my information is that look at these consultations that they're doing right now, 
have now been expanded to cover not only sex education, but uh, but science, technology, math in the classrooms, whether cell phones should be in there. Uh, they're watering down the, the message. and, and the, In other words, it seems as if they're throwing everything into one basket right now to kind of dilute the concern about the sex ed program. And, and that's what's not, not entirely clear. So the memo, as you just mentioned, there's seven areas that they're planning to consult on. That's a lot of consultation. We know uh, just from our own uh, experience that consulting on one topic can be rather cumbersome in some cases. Trying to cover seven topics um, by way of a survey is, is astronomical in order, in order to do it properly and get the information that, that you require. Uh, so a lot of the topics that they list in those seven uh, are quite good, but at the same time you don't want to minimize those discussions. So if this is the one and only opportunity to weigh in on topics like, uh, you know, math. I mean, we know how much, you know, that's struggling in the province right now. You know, you don't want to dilute that with, with six other topics, including sex ed, which is the one that tends to capture more headlines. So there's some really important issues, some really important consultations that need to uh, occur. But once again, what is the role of school boards? What is the role of school board associations, other agencies? Or is the new norm just simply online surveys that anyone can fill out? Well, and they need to be more clear about that, obviously, because they're talking as if they want you to partner in this. You're certainly going to hear from people on this. I mean, you know, you're on the front lines in this issue. You'd like to think that you're going to have, first of all, some input into this, and secondly, maybe even some input into the process uh, so that we can get an accurate picture as to how people actually feel. Yeah, and I think as a, as a school board, we have the opportunity to, to drive this in some respect. Obviously, we have access to uh, 49,000 students in our board alone. Uh, we have the audience right here. We can, we can definitely move that message to parents and do a lot of good work uh, to, to help the province. But once again, we ha- not receiving the direction after the fact uh, and reading about it in a newspaper, for instance, doesn't allow us to operationalize uh, what they're looking for. So we know that they have a deadline right now uh, of just before Christmas. So that's not a long opportunity to consult on the number of topics that they've mentioned. So we really are looking for that information. Um, as you know, most organizations and groups meet monthly or, or so. Uh, so to try to wrap this up in October, November, and try to get everyone to the table and provide some meaning, meaningful impa- uh, input is, is difficult. I mean, it may seem like 60 days or 75 days is a long time, um, but truly, if you're going to engage an entire province, uh, it has to be more than just an online survey. What about the role of the boards themselves, though, as a voice, Todd? I'm, I, I, are you just going to be treated as a, as a citizen here? Uh, I, there's, there's, I think, a certain respect that, that should be accorded to the boards of education in every jurisdiction in this province right now uh, because they're the ones that are delivering the service, so obviously through the staff. Uh, and, and I know that, that, that your director of education, Manny Figueroa, has, is on record as how he feels about these changes. You've been quite vocal about this. Uh, you had a number of students walk out in protest to the changes in the curriculum. So, I mean, there's a, there's a voice there. But do you not get that opportunity to, to, to coordinate that voice and give a, a Hamilton picture, especially from the Board of Education standpoint? And I, and I think right off the bat, since this government has been sworn in, I'll give you an example, and I think it's telling in terms of, of the role of school boards. Uh, to date, I think we've written about three letters to the Ministry of Education on very important topics, uh, like transportation. We've talked about that a lot. Yeah. We wrote on, them on uh, sex ed, uh, and then one or two other topics. We've yet to receive a reply from the ministry. So it's been a very, very slow start. Uh, the dialogue hasn't been overly effective or at all effective. Um, I don't want to say it's, it's it's completely broken at this point. Obviously, we're we're still cautiously optimistic, and we hope for some some better dialogue and partnership. But at this point, um, there hasn't been uh, any dialogue between us and the ministry. Uh, and on the bureaucrat side. Um, there, a lot of uh, the bureaucrats' hands have been tied. There hasn't been a lot of direction to our staff either, um, not as a result of uh, the bureaucrats themselves, but because of the direction that they're kind of in a wait-and-see approach as they get everything in order. So it has been a very slow start. Uh, so just given that as an example, um, it hasn't been productive. We're hoping that we turn a corner on that, um, but definitely we're ready and we're at the table, uh, ready to have those discussions, but we need the province to uh, to uh, meet in the middle. There has been, as we mentioned, some pushback on this already, and, and not just from the Hamilton Board. I think there was 40,000 students province-wide that walked out on that day a few weeks ago. Uh, a number of other boards in positions such as yours, other chairs and boards right across the province, have also been vocal about that. Has that kind of feedback, and it is real legitimate feedback, 
that is contrary to the government position. Is that causing them to walk back from this issue a little bit? We haven't seen it yet, to be honest with you. Um, in Hamilton, uh, actually, oddly enough, uh, that walk- day of walkout or protest was on a PA day, so <laughs> it, it didn't produce, uh, I guess, the results uh, or any results here in Hamilton. Um, or on the other hand, maybe they had 100%. It's all on how you spin it, Todd. <laughs> yeah, you, exactly. you could have just said, hey, everybody walked out that day. Yeah, Nobody came to school. Day, uh, the classrooms were empty and students didn't come, so there you go. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, we haven't seen it, you know, in terms of the government listening to feedback uh, and some of the protests and, and, and information that's been sent their way, uh, we haven't seen any movement. Um, so obviously a number of these issues haven't concluded yet, so there's still time, um, but there's been no indication yet. Um, although we did see, if you recall, and I think you said it earlier as well, that we've seen the minister get cold feet on a couple occasions where she's been caught off guard. Uh, so they've done an announcement, asked her questions, and it almost seems like not so much backtracking, but I guess confusion in terms of what the government's message is. Uh, so that hasn't uh, landed very well with boards either, where if we're not getting clear direction you know, via memo, uh, we're also not getting any verbal direction as well from the minister. So we really need to try to work on those relationships. I think we're ready uh, to have those conversations, and, and certainly we want to build those relationships. We understand how important the provincial government's role is here in Hamilton uh, and are obviously related to our school board. So uh, we want to keep that going. So while we are obviously haven't seen the results, yet. Um, hopefully it doesn't continue the way it is. Uh, and listen, in, in fairness, this is a relatively new government, and, and the minister is, is relatively new to the job, and I, I get that, and they want to get people in place and all that sort of stuff, but I mean, there's, there's also a matter of getting up and running in a situation, and I mean, they knew the school year was going to start after Labor Day. Uh, you know, they, they were didn't have a problem being political about this and simply scrapping the program, but now, of course, there's a void, there's a mess that's left there, and they seem to be a little slow in, in trying to get around to finishing this, but the, the overriding question I've got that I'm not getting an answer to from anybody in the government, and I'm, I'm hoping maybe you have, is you know, they, they say they're going to do this quote-unquote extensive consultation. Is it going to change anything? I mean, if, if the overwhelming input that they get is to say, bring back the one that you just scrapped, are they going to listen to that, or have, have they already made that decision that, no, that's not, that's not going to happen? Yeah, and I, I was having that conversation this morning with, with a couple others in terms of what is the end result going to look like. And right now, the only indication is that we might uh, change some of the age appropriateness of some topics just based on their, the title of their own uh, consultation. So other than placement of particular content, uh, we're not seeing uh, any indications about huge change. So all in all, I mean, is this going to even be drastically different? Is it going to be the same? Are they going to be responsive to feedback saying keep it the same? You know, we don't know the answers to that yet, but it seems like a lot of work and a lot of uh, communication and hype um, when it may or may not even make a difference. So, you know, and I think it comes down to right now, and maybe this is the transition of the new government, um, but there is a, a certain line where uh, you switch from campaign mode and election mode into, you know, governing the province. And I think right now we're still stuck in a little bit of campaign mode, and we haven't quite made that transition to to properly governing uh, education in the province. That seems obvious. Uh, well, if you get anything, please let us know, because we're a little just as frustrated as everybody else on this, Todd. I'm, I'm sure you'll be calling me first to let me know, and then I'll look into it, and then I'll try to let you know. All right. Thanks again, Todd. Appreciate the time <laughs> today. So. Todd White, uh, Chairman of the Board for the Hamilton Board of Education. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.